Velocity generation in the arm, a lot of it, it has to do with how the arm is moving through space, how the body is moving the arm through space. So I have less engine behind that leg now to stride down the mound. If I want someone to use their glute optimally, that foot has either got to be neutral or slightly externally rotated. As soon as I move them into internal rotation, basically giving them less ability to use that glute down the mound. Every individual has a different body type, different movement profile, different physical capability. We need to work within those capabilities to get guys to move optimally. So we don't just go off symptoms. With an athlete, we go off their numbers as well because high torque is high torque and we're trying to minimize risk as best we can. Fellas, 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 welcome back to the Farm System Podcast, your home for baseball development. We're here for you, by you, and with you. I'm your co-host, Joey Cunha. And I'm Bo Callis. This podcast is designed for coaches, players, scouts, really anyone looking to further their development in the game of baseball. Here at the Farm System, we take pride in being lifelong learners, and we are here to be a bridge from where you are to where you're going. We'd like to welcome back our veteran listeners. We're happy to grow with you again. We'd also like to welcome our first-time listeners, the rookies. Don't worry, every vet was once a rookie, including Bo. This podcast is brought to you by our partners over at Baseball Cloud, professional data for amateur players. Baseball Cloud allows players from all over the country to consolidate data from their performance in a centralized location. This allows players, coaches, and scouts to effectively track, compare, and view player results through the use of graphs and a multitude of other visual analysis tools within seconds. Learn more about their software at BaseballCloud.com and follow them on social media at BaseballCloudUS. If you haven't yet, make sure to check out the online marketplace of resources we put together at TheSystem.Farm. We have a multitude of different sections including drill videos, practice plans, discount codes, job listings, unsigned players, and so much more, all free. Our premium membership gives you full access to travel ball team rankings, player rankings, chat boards, as well as other features we'll be releasing in the coming months. Make sure you're a member at thesystem.farm. That's thesystem.farm. On this episode, we feature part two of 108 Performances presentation from Pitchapalooza 2018, presented by Eugene Bleeker and Emily Faree. Don't forget to use code THEFARM25 for $25 off the Bridge the Gap 2019 video package. Don't leave that dugout. We got Bo and Joe coming up next on the Farm System, right here, right now. So the next segment we're going to go into, so again, playing the video, I'm going to try to keep it short because we got a bunch of stuff to move through still. So uh, this is a kid that came in. This is him at 12 years old. Okay, 12 years old, throwing 80 miles an hour from the left side. So this is at the Little League World Series, or Cooperstown. This is him in high school. He was 88 to 90 his senior year, okay? This is his freshman year at the college. Look at that, October 28th, 2015, okay? So at the end of his freshman year, he was 83 to 85. He went in at 88 to 90, and now he's 83 to 85, Okay? That's not good. Last year, he started working with one of our trainers. He was at 88 to 90 as a redshirt sophomore. So it's three years later. He spent the last couple of years building the strength back up to be able to be at 88 to 90. But he wasn't really like a guy they were considering using. He's a major Division I program, right? 88 to 90, like just a strike thrower. Um, started working on his arm path, right? 
And three months later, he was hitting 97, and he got drafted in the 17th round. And he only threw nine innings. So, actually, I feel super comfortable talking about it now since Paul said that he agreed with it. Um, Paul was talking about weighted balls. Kyle talked about, well, a lot of people talk about weighted balls. Why do they work? Why do they work? I'm going to give you my opinion on why I think they work and don't work. Three results happen from a program, weighted ball program, right? One, best case scenario, guy gains velo, gets healthier, feels like a million bucks, okay? Scenario two, guy doesn't throw any harder, but he feels better, right? A lot of guys will say they feel better, they just don't have any more juice. They're not throwing harder, okay? Scenario three, guy gets hurt. In scenario A, the weight of the ball or the drills he was doing or the bowling pins or the PVC pipes or the hammers or screwdrivers, whatever, the water bottles, Wasserman's water, whatever he was doing altered his movement pattern in his arm. He worked at a more proximal position on landing and allowed the arm to unwind away from him. Velocity generation in the arm, a lot of it, like it has to do with how the arm is, and the health. It has to do with how the arm is moving through space, how the body is moving the arm through space. When we throw, we rotate. When the trunk rotates, the arm is going to work behind, and then it's going to unwind because our elbow does two things. It flexes and extends, and it pronates and supinates. We work from a flex position at landing, and then we unwind out the chain. We want to allow it to release. But a lot of guys don't do that. When you get a guy to do that, he throws harder and he throws healthier. When a guy doesn't do that, but doesn't have high-stress throwing patterns, then he throws healthier, the result doesn't get better. The guy that gets hurt is the guy that throws really poorly in the first place, creates no positive adaptations, and adds load. Like, in the weight room, are you going to add load to a guy's movement patterns in a squat if he, if he moves poorly? If he's got a bad squat pattern, are you just going to keep adding load on it and tell him to do it harder and expect it to always get better? Right? You can't. It all has to do with how the individual is moving and whether or not you're creating a better movement adaptation. So these are some of the drill. I mean, we do a ton of stuff. I try anything and everything. Uh, we've been doing dynamic warm-up stuff, throwing, uh, turns, jumps, getting athletic, like trying to figure out ways to create different or more optimal length tension relationships in the body and get the arm to work better. And not all of these are perfect, right? But they're working towards creating better motor patterns to let the ball unwind. Yesterday, do you remember in Paul's presentation when you saw the arm kind of uh, unwind and he talked about the importance of rotational velocity there and getting the forearm to rotate? Good arms are 0 to 13 at the elbow on release and about 90 at the shoulder, okay? They're out here. What people fail to realize sometimes is that if I'm throwing from it, everybody throws from this slot. We're not even overhead athletes. We release from here. We get here when we land. What determine? I mean, you could classify us as overhead athletes, but when we throw from a higher slot, it's our we, we tilt our spine. We're just we're still throwing around our spine. We're just tilting the tornado over. So that doesn't even necessarily make us overhead athletes, does it? it all depends on how you look at it. Kind of like the barrel above the hands thing. Okay, so this was a report. Uh, we had an organization send us a professional player this off season, and he was a very high draft pick out of high school. Um, and he did not feel so good this year. This was his second year. He got shut down in the middle of the year, um, had some arm issues, shoulder impingement, and we did an assessment, and he's training with us this offseason, and we put together a report for them. So 
This is a really important piece of the report, and this is going to challenge some current views and thinking on how we look at hitting and pitching and training it. Um, we put guys on a table, right? And we assess them. And when we do that, we're trying to like get an idea and ask somebody like, is this guy going to get hurt? Is he, uh, is he going to be able to extend his career? Is he at risk right now? But the person that's actually doing the assessment a lot of times, like that person never even watches the move. They don't understand movement patterns in hitting and throwing. They didn't actually watch the person move. They didn't do a throwing assessment, right? But there's these automatic things that we look at. Emily's going to talk about some of those right now. So something that a lot of people believe um, is that lacking interpretation on the back hip of a pitcher is going to set them up for injury. It's a problem. We need to fix it and just crank them into internal rotation. Um, first off, all of the research that correlates internal rotation to um, either spine or upper extremity injury in a, in a pitcher um, is not looking at the back hip. It's looking at the front hip. Um, and in any other sport where they're correlating lack of internal rotation um, in a rotational athlete such as tennis, such as pitching, um, golf, are either correlating that lack of internal rotation in the front hip with injury, or a lot of these uh, research evidence, if you look at meta-analysis, which is basically taking all of the research in a particular area and then drawing global conclusions based on all the research, not just one research study, it's generally inconclusive. Um, and deemed as more of a movement issue possibility than a direct correlation, because there's just as many in populations that are healthy with it. Um, so that's the first thing I would say is look more closely at the research. Are they talking about the front hip or the back hip? And if you look across research, is it actually conclusive? And what meta-analysis will tell you is actually no. So first off, it's not supported really in the research. Um, the second problem with that is that, like Eugene said, I have to rag on my own profession for a little bit here, is that coaches, um, scouts, teams are always coming to us as the doctors and asking, um, is this kid healthy? Does he have a good machine behind him? Is he going to get injured? Have we made a good investment? Um, and us as the medical staff, we so badly want to be able to give you guys answers and be able to predict. Um, and so most physical therapists and doctors will give you the only information that they can actually acquire and then make very vast decisions based on that. What physical therapists are really good at doing is measuring range of motion and measuring strength. And the way that they do that, there are some functional tests and measures, but I would even argue that that's still drastically different than what happens on the mound. But generally what medical staff will do is they'll throw a guy on a table and they'll measure hip rotation. And the way that we measure hip rotation is supine. So on your back, they bring the hip up to 90 degrees of flexion, which your back hip is never in that position when you pitch. And then we measure rotation from neutral. So let's think about when we pitch. Let's think about all those guys you watched earlier that looked effortless. We tell guys we want them to be in their glutes, right? Be in your glutes. Be glute dominant with it, not quad dominant, right? Well, there's two ways I can get to internal rotation or external rotation because it's relative to the positioning of the femur and the pelvis. I can get to internal rotation like this or I can get there like this. I can get to external rotation like that or, or I could get there like that. And the glutes happen to be an external rotator. When you're in the weight room and you're doing squats, what do you do with a guy's feet? Toe out, toe out. So you're working from a max position of external rotation. And then when you do let it go, it's not even internally rotated. It's at neutral. The hips are squared up forward. It's not even internally rotated. So when you focus on pitching or hitting and doing this first, like let's think about it from a hitting perspective. When, the, when our front foot lands, the ball is 
10 feet in front of us, which means we need efficiency. We have to get to the ball really, really quickly, right? The middle is our mover. Lance talked about it the other day. Zach will tell you the same thing. The middle is the mover. It shoots down, it shoots up, right? If I want the middle to move me, I want to create an anchor point, and I want to get to external rotation so I can use what I have in my glutes. When you watch Vasquez, let's see if this works. I don't know if it's going to work. How many guys, raise your hand, please, if you've ever used the cue in pitching to keep their back foot anchored into the rubber? Raise your hand real quick if you've used that. Why? Does it work? It does, right? You've seen it work before. That's right. Because when you do that and you're turning like this, you're, not, you're keeping your anchor point. And then the hips turn, this gets let go, and it comes up. Vasquez does it. Severino does it. Tons of guys do it. Do you have to do it to be in the level throw? No. But if you want to stay in your glutes longer, you can't force yourself into internal rotation. So all of the guys that are sitting like this hitting and can't hit fastballs, right, because they're stuck in a preloaded position of a joint like that, Right? They, they have no ability to load and unload the area. They're forcing themselves into internal rotation. You can't do that. Right? We have to work to external rotation to neutral. So like Eugene said, one, lack of internal rotation, in my opinion, is invalid because it's not supported by research. Two, the way we test it is not actually where an athlete is internally or externally rotated when they pitch. Um, the third reason is when you pitch, um, your initial hip pop is actually external rotation. It's not internal rotation. So as your femur is fixed, your pelvis rotates over your femur towards home plate. This is relative external rotation. So the motion that's potentially much, much, much more important on the back hip is external rotation, not internal rotation. Now, as the athlete rolls over that foot and continues their pitching motion, they are internally rotating that hip directionally. So they're moving from a position of external rotation back to neutral. Because you have to remember their pelvis is all the way facing home at this point. So when their femur is internally rotating, rotating in the motion, it's not actually reaching a large internal rotation range of motion. So it's directionally internally rotating, but from a position standpoint, they're actually just rotating back to neutral. So lacking internal rotation range of motion should not be a huge red flag for most of our pitchers. Um, and so we make the mistake a lot of times of sticking a pitcher or a batter, like Eugene said, in a position of internal rotation. Now, that's a problem, first off, because if you have a stiff mover, your pelvis and femur are always going to want to move together. So if I internally rotate my hip, that's what we call a closed pack position. So essentially, there's less room in the hip joint for anybody if you internally rotate them. So there's less degrees of freedom. Now, as you guys know, there's a huge abduction range of motion that happens in the hip as you stride down the mound. So if I need to reach this big abduction range of motion, but I've already closed off the space in my hip joint, a stiff mover is gonna immediately move out of internal rotation, give themselves more space in their hip joint so that they can stride out. So what that looks like realistically is our hips are gonna leap, leak forward really quickly to move themselves out of internal rotation. So that looks like opening way too early and leaking forward. Um, so the other problem with that is if you stick a hitter or a pitcher into internal rotation, our muscles like to work at an optimal length tension relationship. So if you shorten a muscle to its max range or you lengthen a muscle to its max range, you're going to get less power or less torque out of that muscle. So if I internally rotate my leg, I'm taking my hip and that glute muscle, which is an extensor and an external rotator, towards its end range of motion, and your glute is actually less powerful in an internally rotated position. 
So I have less engine behind that leg now to stride down the mound. If I want someone to use their glute optimally, that foot has either got to be neutral or slightly externally rotated. As soon as I move them into internal rotation, I'm basically giving them less ability to use that glute down the mound. So let's make use of this information. You have a guy that's a tight mover, right? You have a tight mover. You see that he can't throw strikes, or he's not maximizing his velo, and you see that he has poor internal rotation. Rather than spending the next three months trying to open up his hips, so he could, which is going to tighten up anyway over time, like what, what, over the course of the season, like why not just open his foot? Why not just do that? I mean, Scherzer does it. Felix Hernandez does it. Justin Verlander does it. Felix Hernandez starts like this, and then it sweeps open even further as he's going forward. Like, why not just do that? Well, why not just angle them a little closed? Like, sequencing is more important for our ability to throw healthy and throw strikes than getting to some optimal, I have to stride to that spot. No, you don't. You don't. I'm sorry, you don't. If you are a, uh, look, Every individual has a different body type, different movement profile, different physical capability. We need to work within those capabilities to get guys to move optimally. Some guys land, I was talking to a pitching coach from an organization, this was like three months ago, and he was a college pitching coach. And one of his guys, right, this, he was part of the reason he ended up in pro ball. Like he turned this dude around, he ended up throwing like fuel, like 98. And when the kid ended up in pro ball, he was told that he's not allowed to land with his foot open like this anymore, okay? And now all of a sudden, two years later, kid's velo's down seven miles an hour, can't throw a freaking strike, never had problem with command before, but you took away his length tension relationship. We need to get out of our own heads and what we perceive as this is what it has to be and start to allow ourselves to open up our minds to the fact that there's different individuals. And once again, like, Everything that every single person in this room has ever said is right. None of you have ever said uh, uh, bad information. It's all good information. We just have to open up our toolboxes and figure out who to apply it to and how and when. Because we have no edge. It's not even anybody's fault. There's zero education. Zero. Like, where's our education? How do we learn how to do our jobs? On the job. Right? There's no coaching school. Former players, we start coaching and we give people what we heard, what we felt, what we did, right? But that's all we have. So we just have to keep like opening up that window. So with this particular player, we're going to continue with the report that we did. Um, those were some of the things that we do. So here's his initial testing. So what you're going to see is early trunk rotation, right? The wave in his arm, that is not a clean arm path. That arm is traveling into... Uh, the anterior shoulder as it's lifting and then kind of pushing over the ball. That's a bad line. If you have a guy that looks like that, that's bad. Okay. Do you want to explain some of the numbers? Yeah. So up here you have graphs of the torque acting at his shoulder and his elbow as well as his um, kinematic sequence. So this particular athlete had actually some really red flag numbers in both the torque at his elbow and his shoulder. Um, his elbow torque was almost twice of what we prefer it to be. I mean, almost, and even more notably, the torque levels at his shoulder um, were more than double as well what we prefer to see in athletes, um, or in pitchers, I should say. And he actually was having shoulder symptoms. So generally, when athletes come in we'll, and they have uh, arm patterning problems, we'll see either high torque at the elbow or high torque at the shoulder. We generally don't see 
um, red flags in both joints. So this athlete was how I would categorize a high-risk athlete. Um, and so Eugene, do you want to talk a little bit about what you did with him? And I'll talk about the results. Sure. So in terms of altering the pattern, uh, we isolated it first. We did a lot of different things to try to get his arm to capture better. We used internal cueing, external cueing, feels. We used uh, the thought to, I, this works for some guys, uh, take three fingers, close them, thumb and pinky out, and think about scratching the back of your neck with your thumb. Uh, we threw bowling pins, we threw PVC pipes, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, to try to create a more optimal movement pattern for his arm. Threw a lot of weighted balls, uh, did a lot of different drills, um, and the arm started to clean up. And when you look at motor learning, how I view it, right or wrong, I look at it like you are isolating a specific pattern of movement, and once you have the pattern, you can challenge it. If you don't have a good pattern, challenging it is worthless. So you learn the pattern, you challenge the pattern, and then you, if it succeeds, you continue to move forward. If it fails, you go backwards. Sometimes we'll have a guy thrown against the wall, and when he has his eyes open, he can't do it well. When he closes his eyes, it's money. Like money, eyes closed, right? Open his eyes, crappy. And then he figures out how to do it with his eyes open. Then you move him in the cage, and he opens his eyes, and you give him a baseball, garbage. Close his eyes, good. So it's all blending it. Up And some guys, we had a kid, uh, I was talking to Justin James from UCSD, who's a brilliant pitching coach, and, uh, or he's not with UCSD anymore, he's at Point Loma, but we had a kid this last summer um, that Dimitri, because he was the pitching coach there at the time, sent up, and he was like 80, I think 85, 86, and he made the least progress of anybody for the first month and a half of the summer. Like, least progress of anybody. And then one day, clicked like a light bulb, just figured it out. His second bullpen, he was 88 to 90. Second bullpen. There were other guys who were really good early on, and then as they moved to the mound, struggled a little bit. Different guys have you know, different issues blending patterns to the mound. Um, so we took this athlete, and um, after how long was it that you worked with him? A couple of weeks? A couple of uh, he started in... I want to say a couple of months. Two months. Yeah, about two months. We came in and we retested him. Um, his elbow torque levels were back down to a normal level. He cut his shoulder torque um, by 62%. I mean, overall better sequencing throughout the throwing motion and is pain-free. So this is generally what we see. Um, this is a pattern we see with almost all the 108 athletes that come in. We get them on initial evaluation. And then um, after working with Eugene and his team for a few months, all of his athletes are cutting their torque down. All of his athletes are improving sequencing, um, and they're measuring higher velocity, um, things like that. So what we like to see is that these changes in kinematics and kinetics that are resulting in safer arms and healthier elbows and shoulders are actually resulting in increased performance as well. So the two do go hand in hand really nicely. Um, so we're seeing some very powerful results in that regard. Pain was in the shoulder, didn't present in the elbow, but on the same token, like physically, he is extremely gifted. He's extremely gifted physically. Um, so sometimes we'll see a kid that's like 15 that comes in, and he throws 72, which is awful at that age, right? And he doesn't have pain, okay? He doesn't have pain, but he's also strong enough to deal with how poor the throwing motion is. You know what I mean? So he's strong enough to deal with that level, uh, but if he was to, say, throw that same way at 84, he'd probably have an issue. 
And not all um, torque levels will result in the same response with an athlete. So um, we talked about 150 or 115 newton meters of torque is we like to see athletes lower than that in their elbow. Um, some athletes will start to have symptoms at 80 newton meters of torque, and some athletes we've seen upwards of 200 newton meters of torque symptom free. So your UCL or your common flexor tendon, some of the structures in your elbow that attenuate that torque or are stressed in that throwing motion, um, you have more than just one structure that is being loaded with that torque. And so some athletes, depending on how they're structured, um, can tolerate more load than others. So a certain level of torque doesn't always correlate black and white um, in a one-to-one -one ratio to when you'll feel pain and where you'll feel pain. So depending on how the elbow is structured, depending on their bony morphology, depending on hypertrophy of their common uh, flexor tendon in their elbow, it depends on where you'll see symptoms. So we don't just go off symptoms with an athlete. We go off their numbers as well because high torque is high torque, and we're trying to minimize risk as best we can. So even if they are symptom-free, like this athlete in his elbow, we still want to perform, um, we still want to work on their technique to get motor programs that are going to get that torque down as well. So... We're still having some trouble with this, so I guess I'll just explain uh, what we were going to see. Like, his lower half isn't finished yet, and he was still throwing, like, 88 to 90 the other day. Uh, it's still early in the process. Like, I expect that he'll be 93, 94 by the time he goes back and pain-free. And when he came in, he was 88 to 91, 92 sometimes with arm pain, right? So a uh, very successful off-season for him. Um, the slide after that that I was going to pull up uh, was a more hitting-related slide, kind of going back to that individual I was talking about earlier. Um, so when you assess a hitter, you have to look at what's actually happening in games. Totally agree. I happen to like the tee. I like to assess off the tee because I feel like that helps me understand what his brain is telling him to do, right, which translates. If he's working on forcing internal rotation all the time when he's swinging and he loses his length-tension relationship in his backside... And then it doesn't present all the time when he hits in games, but some of the time and a lot more of the time on his failures. I still want to see what he thinks he's supposed to do. I want to see how he thinks he's supposed to move. Uh, when we use the data, like when we use, uh, when I look at hit tracks data or blast motion, or you got to be super careful. You got to be super careful with all that stuff because, look, you, it's easy to make guys' exit velocity go up. You can have a guy's exit velocity go up and it creates a negative adaptation for games. Right? So he hits the ball harder off of hit tracks in a cage, but then you go out to games and the result is not quite as good. So when we work with pro guys, it's not as much on, uh, again, it's dependent on the individual, but it's not as much on like exit velocities. Like we don't really care. We just want to see him move better, like specific movements. So with that particular hitter, uh, he naturally had a little bit of kickback in his swing, but he was landing open because he was reading a book on hitting and he was seeing that guys should land with the front foot open and that made sense to him. But he also has an extreme degree of internal rotation, 64 degrees or something like 65 degrees of internal rotation on his lead side, which means he couldn't get to a good, that means he could go like all the way over here, right? So he could never block off his energy. So a big focus was closing his front foot off, giving him a little bit of angle to brace him better. Another big part of the focus was to give him better uh, posture, right? Because he was landing open, but tall, no posture, right? So what do you think he hit? Not hard to figure out. Inside fastballs really well, right? And then everything outside, breaking away from them, like no adjustability. So when you look at him from the following year, considerably better adjustability, like, I mean, very good results. So this is the after video for the same athlete we are talking about after his post-evaluation. So what you'll see is overall better sequencing. He's not rotating all of his pelvis, torso, and arm together. So he actually gets 
um, some better connection there. And then his torque graph is significantly lower. Like I said, almost a 62% decrease. Um, and what you would have noticed in the graph before where there's two, um, there were two moments of uh, high torque at the elbow throughout his pitching motion. He now only has one moment of high torque, which is right where we'd expect it to be. And it's much, much, much lower than it was before. So the last slide that we were going to pull up uh, basically said everything works and everything sucks. Okay, like everything works. There's nothing that you can't do that doesn't work. You just have to figure out, like I said earlier, uh, who to use it for, who to use it with, and when to use it, right? Like, and there are so many things for us to still continue to figure out. Like coaches have to learn how to, you know, like a, a college coach is not necessarily like a scientist that's just going to sit around and collect a whole bunch of data all the time. Your job is to make your players better. How can I use the data right now to make my players better? That's what you're interested in. Winning games, making guys better. That's your job, right? You have to learn how to understand the information uh, because in this game right now, uh, the dangerous part is like kids and young players not listening to go. You might have the exact right thing to tell them, but he's not going to listen to anything you have to say because you don't understand his world. Right? You don't understand the world he's living in, the viewpoint through which he sees, the lens through which he sees. So he's never going to listen. Like If you tell him slow is smooth, smooth is fast, and he actually did it, like he might throw four miles an hour harder and get drafted. But he's not going to listen to you. So we have to continue to push the game forward, but we also have to get better at using empirical observations to test and actually like understand what's actually going on. Right? Like It's not uh, old school, new school. It's not over here. And it's not over here, it's right in here, okay? And this room in particular, there is not one person that came all the way out here that's not good at their job. Everybody here loves to do this. Like I heard somebody at the ABCA a couple of years ago say, if you coach baseball and you're trying to make money, you're retarded. Like, it's true, right? We do this because we love it. So everybody here, this is the best in the game. That's why... You know, Lance is such an amazing human for putting it on. And, you know, all of you guys are here trying to push the game forward. So thanks so much for uh, listening to the presentation. I, I cherish the opportunity. It's a huge honor. Um, thank you so much. You got to love having Emily and get having that perspective and also that empirical, um, you know, and experiential knowledge from Bleak and blending those two together. This call takeo is brought to you by Yakertech. Yakertech is the gold standard for measuring spin rate, velocity, trajectory, and most important, spin access of a pitched ball. No other system captures such clarity on a moving ball. Learn more about their system at yakertech.com. Also, follow them on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to stay up to date at YTBallTracking. That's at YTBallTracking. Yeah, Joy, what was your biggest takeaway from the presentation? Yeah, no, I think the the biggest one is kind of, you know, what I mentioned is, you know, more and more we're going to need these integration, these guys that are going to have uh, multifaceted and multi, uh, multidisciplinary uh, coaches that understand and have a, uh, a, at least a general understanding of different perspectives of, of the same movements, right? So uh, understanding what a biomechanist is seeing, you know, again, more from like Emily's perspective, biomechanist, uh, PT, right? And then blending that with uh, the art of coaching and understanding that just because, you know, X, Y, Z is not happening doesn't mean I need to tell them to do X, Y, Z. There's all these different ways to create these different results. Um, and at the end of the day, um, the, you know, everybody's on the same team trying to get guys to move better um, and get better quicker. So uh, that's my biggest call uh, takeaway there. How about you, Bo? Yeah, no, I agree. And mine's a piece of that um, understanding how to create the most efficient movements for particular players. Uh, Emily hit it on the head there. 
uh, in that second half of the presentation that our bodies operate most effectively and most efficiently um, at a certain and right uh, length tension relationship, and that changes player to player. So I think my biggest takeaway is just understanding that each player has different regions of motions and, and various amounts of slack that they need to pull out, and that means as coaches we have to understand um, understand that and, and train each guy accordingly. Absolutely. Well, you know, guys, just like uh, Bo mentioned at the beginning, uh, make sure to go ahead and check out those resources that we put together for you guys. Um, and also keep your eyes out. Again, it is spooky season. We have some stuff in the works here. Um, we have some things to keep your eye out for some of these things we'll be releasing. But from us and our partners over at Baseball Cloud, until next time, Farm System out.